I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We've been walking through this uh, wonderful Gospel uh, rendition uh, of the, the, the earthly ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We'll be looking at chapter 9 this morning. And uh, as you're finding your way over there, I will uh, alert you that eventually we will get to chapter 9, verse 18 specifically. But we are going to be looking at a lot of scriptures in preparation for that. And you'll have in your, you have in your worship guide a, a portion of that uh, guide uh, set aside just for sermon notes. I'll be making reference to a number of passages of scripture. You may not have the opportunity to turn to them. You may want to just jot them down and go back and look at them later. Uh, but just, just to have that handy. So whether you're reading electronically or from the old hard copy, uh, that's all right. You know, if you ask the average person on the street today the question, whether it's at the mall or whether it's on the street or it, it, on the job or at school, you ask the question, what does Christmas mean to you? It reveals a whole lot about that person just in a, uh, just a few words. You're likely to get a wide variety of answers to that question. You'll get some solid biblical descriptions of, of the true meaning of, of Christmas. You, you'll get some vaguely Christian answers to that question. You're liable to get a number of secular and even materialistic answers to what Christmas means to that individual or those individuals. And surely you'll get a few or a couple of Scrooges. You know, the old bah humbug. I don't believe in Christmas. But our text today, as we'll eventually get to, presents yet another eternally significant question that every person, every person, has to come to grips with that will make the difference of the eternal destiny of their soul. And that question is, who do you think Jesus Christ is? I trust that the majority of you, and I'd like to thank all of you, but I'd like to think, I trust that, that the majority of you have already resolved that question. You have settled that question. You know. And so as we consider that this morning, I want to, first of all, just inform you that Jesus Christ was not just first introduced in the Christmas story at the beginning of the Gospels. I want to take you back into the Old Testament and I want you to see the inspired acclamations of God in His Word, even before the incarnation when God came to earth in the form of a human being as the second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ. Before His incarnation, God unveils glimpses of the coming Messiah. In fact, if you were to go back to the very dawn of the history of man, in the garden, at the fall of man and woman to sin, under the temptation of the, of the shrewd serpent who is none other than Satan. There in chapter 3, verse 15, when God is pronouncing the curse of sin upon mankind and upon all of creation for that matter, and God in, in delivering His curse upon on the a serpent, he, he revealed the coming of the Messiah. Because he said there in chapter 3, verse 15, that, that there would be one who would be the seed of woman, which was a, a description of the, of the virgin birth of Christ. And, so, and he told Satan that, the, that this seed of woman, Christ, the Messiah, 
was healed, the serpent would wound. God says He will crush your head. There's one coming, God said, even in that bleak time in the history of man, when man had fallen into sin, God said, He's coming. And He was speaking of Jesus Christ, the one who would have ultimate victory over the devil, over sin. So you see, even at the very dawning of history of man, Christ was being revealed by God. We have a wonderful acclamation of, of the coming of the Messiah. I think about in Genesis chapter 12, verse 13, when God was making that wonderful promise to Abraham, his faithful servant. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And I will bless you and I'll make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. But listen to what he says to Abraham. In you, all the families of the world will be blessed. There's no way that Abraham could fulfill that promise. There was no way that the nation that eventually came from Abraham, his descendants, the nation of Israel, could fulfill that promise. But I'll tell you who could fulfill that promise. It was the very Messiah who came out of the nation of Israel, Jesus Christ, who could bless every family of the whole earth. In our survey study in the Old Testament, we were looking in First and Second Samuel. You may recall that God spoke of the fulfillment of this wonderful promised Messiah when He was talking to David there in Second Samuel chapter seven, in verse twelve. God is saying to His His favored servant David, the man after God's own heart, in verse twelve of chapter seven of Second Samuel. He says, "When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you." Speaking of the coming of the Messiah who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, speaking of historically Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, speaking prophetically of Christ Jesus. And in verse 16 there, 2 Samuel 7, he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Speaking of Christ, even at that time, in the Old Testament, God was acclaiming the coming of His precious Son, Jesus Christ. But God spoke through the prophets as well in describing the coming of this marvelous, wonderful Savior. Jesus was being described in Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 7 in verse 14, a very familiar passage. Jesus would be the very sign that would give hope to a king and to a nation, but He would be the very sign that would give hope to all of humanity. When in chapter 7, verse 14, the Lord said through Isaiah, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, Jesus Christ, and shall call His name Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah would go ahead in, that, uh, in chapter 9. God would also reveal the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. In chapter 9 of Isaiah, verse 6, He says, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God was saying to all of humanity, to the world, I will establish the King of Kings. 
the Lord of lords, the God of gods, who will rule forever. And there's only one who fits that description, ladies and gentlemen, and that is the precious Son of God. We know that through that great prophet of old, Daniel, he spoke in chapter 9 in that great prophetic book of the Messiah who would come in the end times and establish his kingdom. So we have that wonderful reference of the Messiah. But then as we look to the very end of the Old Testament, in, that, in the closing chapter, the closing verse, in a, in a very dark time in the nation, in the history of the nation of Israel, when it appears that all hope is lost, and after this, God wouldn't speak for some 400 years during the intertestamental time. But in that dark and bleak time in the, in the history of the nation of Israel, God gave a glimmer of hope. He shined a light, a ray of hope. When he said there in, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, he says, But to you who fear my name, the Son, capitalized, of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow like fattened calves who have been stall-fed, and you shall trample the wicked. God was saying, even at that time in the, in the history of Israel, as dark as things were, He says, there's hope. There's hope. Even before the birth of Christ, we have an acclamation of God, of the coming of His precious Son. In the Gospel of Luke, if we were to go to chapter 1, I'll take you to a familiar passage. This is before Jesus is born. This is before the concept is even settled in. God sent his, his powerful archangel Gabriel to a young Nazarene woman who was a virgin by the name of Mary. And there in Luke's Gospel in chapter 1, listen to these words. It says, Then the angel said to her, to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see the thread of commonality that runs all the way through the scriptures. There is one who is coming. He will be the king of kings. His kingdom will prevail forever. There will never be an end to his kingdom. And just as we in the season of Advent have been looking forward to the first, or, or looking back and celebrating the first coming of Jesus Christ, we as Bible-believing Christians look so in, with great anticipation to His second coming when Jesus will reign on this earth and establish His kingdom forever. Even before the birth of Jesus, but in very close proximity, you might say time-wise, God sent that same angel to the very young man who was betrothed to Mary, to be married. You can understand that Joseph, when he found out that his wife, or his wife-to-be, whom he did not know in, in an intimate way, was pregnant. Joseph was deliberating in his mind as a good law-abiding Jew how he might, in a very discreet and, and caring and loving way, dispose of his wife. And so he was thinking about that. And God sent an angel to Joseph with some profound news for him to know. 
And it says, And while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yahshua, God our salvation, for he will save his people from his sins. So you see, even before Jesus was born, God was speaking mightily and he was speaking powerfully. He was acclaiming the coming of his precious son. Of course, many of the world did not take note at that time. But even at the birth of Jesus, God was making a bold statement about who this baby was that was born to a virgin there in the little town of Bethlehem. In Luke's gospel in chapter 2, in verse 6, again, very familiar passages and sometimes even on Christmas cards. We're told, and there were in the same country, chapter 2 of Luke, verse 8, and there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. you got to understand, they didn't have street lights, and they didn't have all the things that would illuminate the world at that time, but out there around a campfire on a dark hillside, while their sheep were sleeping, these shepherds getting ready to bed down for the night didn't realize the angels were coming to party from heaven. And those angels stood there and the angels said to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And, and of course it goes on from there and, and there was great excitement. Well, if there was excitement in the fields outside of Bethlehem, you can imagine the excitement that was generated in the city of Jerusalem, according to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. When all the way from the far east came these astrologers, these powerful men of influence in Eastern culture, known as Magi, and all of a sudden they show up in the streets of Jerusalem and they have a mission, their own mission. And there in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 2, verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, that's Herod the great, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And of course, when Herod did, Paranoid as he was, heard this news of a supposedly another king to the Jews when he considered himself to be the king of the Jews. You can believe he was paranoid, he was very jealous, and he was very afraid. And of course, he sought to try to kill the baby Jesus. So, what I want you to see, even as we walk through that survey of the Old Testament and some of the New Testament before the birth of Jesus and at the birth of Jesus, listen, how could it be a surprise? to a waiting world when the Son of God shows up in such a miraculous way having been given all these notices so clearly in the Scriptures. We saw the inspired acclamations that prepared the way of the coming of Messiah. Who is Jesus Christ? But I want you to focus now upon His earthly ministry. Jesus some. 30 years later, as he's beginning his public ministry, 
He had a forerunner, a cousin by the name of John the Baptist. John was an unusual kind of a prophet. He was in the New Testament era, but he had Old Testament traits, kind of like a, a New Testament Elijah. Gruff in, in his appearance. He wore camel hair and he ate locusts. And, and so he wasn't the kind of refined socialite that you would have at dinner maybe. And here comes John the Baptist and he's, he's proclaiming. He's announcing. Repent for the kingdom of God is here. The king is here. The king that has been declared and prophesied for centuries. He's here. Get your hearts ready. And in John's Gospel in chapter 1, verse 29, we're told of one occasion when John the Baptist looked up and he saw, he saw Jesus walking towards him. And from his own lips he proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's one of our Team Kid memory verses. I'm sure they were quoting right along with me. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Oh, John knew who he was. And there was no mistake about that. But during the earthly ministry of Christ, how, how did the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, the leaders of Judaism, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, how, how did they recognize Him? Did they run out and embrace Him? And so finally, you're here, Messiah. We're so glad. What a relief. You're finally here. You're here to, to save us from our awful penalty of our sins. Of course not. As we have recounted through the Gospel of Luke up till chapter 9, we know the attitude of the religious leaders. If you were to ask any one of them, they would have probably given you a variety of answers. For instance, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 21, they said of Jesus, He's a blasphemer. Why? Because when He healed the paralytic man, Jesus had the audacity to say to that man, Your sins are forgiven. Why? They said nobody has the authority but God to forgive sin. You see, they were blinded spiritually. They didn't know it was God who was standing in front of them. Oh no, they, they said, no, he's a blasphemer that he could dare claim to forgive the sins of people. Oh listen, if that wasn't bad enough in John's Gospel in chapter 8, they went on to say and accuse Jesus of being an illegitimate child. And they poked fun at him because his, his mother Mary supposedly didn't have a legitimate husband. And Jesus was born out of wedlock. And they were, they were saying, we're sons of Abraham. And you, you're just an illegitimate boy. Oh, listen, if that was bad, what was, was bad, listen. They went on in that same chapter, in chapter 8 of John's Gospel, in verse 48, and again in verse 52. And when they saw the miracles that Jesus was was working. And folks, there was no denying. There, were, there was no denying. Even the religious leaders couldn't deny that there was something different about this Jesus. He possessed a power they'd never seen before. But their answer was, oh, we understand. And then in chapter 8, and verse 48, and verse 52, they said, we know, we understand, you're of the devil. Of course. The only way that you can work these miracles is because you're empowered by the devil. You're on Beelzebub's side. And tragically, Jesus looked at them and pronounced to them that what they had just done, attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan, 
was the unpardonable sin. They didn't understand, but one day they would step over into the fires of hell where they are right now and will be for eternity and realize because of that blind statement that was totally void of faith, their souls were condemned to the fires of hell forever and ever and ever. And so is every person who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But what about the masses of people? As you have been following through the, 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 the proclamation of the Gospel of Luke, listen, Jesus was popular. And this was, a, this was a time before advertisements. This was a time before television advertisements or radio. Well, they didn't have TV and radio. Probably didn't have broad, uh, broadly uh, distributed newspapers. They didn't have billboards. And yet, through Jesus' ministry, public ministry in Galilee, the scripture record tells us over and over again he was being followed not only by his close disciples, his apostles, but usually multitudes of people, great crowds of people. And these people were, were, were treated to the privilege of witnessing the most authoritative teaching on the kingdom of God they'd ever heard. They were listening to him preach and teach about the kingdom of God and about God the Father, and they reasoned to themselves, nobody has ever preached with such authority. Who is this man? They saw, as Jesus did, the unthinkable as he was healing people who, who suffered with the tragic condemning disease of leprosy and Jesus would heal their, their skin and they would be like baby skins. They would be given their life back. He watched as Jesus, by the spoken word, caused those who were paralyzed and crippled and unable to walk and Jesus would cause them to walk again. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. They witnessed as Jesus was doing and demonstrating a power over the, 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 the forces of, nat of, of the natural realm as he told a raging storm with the, with the billowing waves to just be quiet. Like a barking dog, the ocean settled down, the sea. Who is this man who possesses the kind of power that even the seas and the wind would obey him? And if that wasn't good enough, listen, the multitudes, I'm not talking about just a select few, but the multitudes saw as he raised the dead. The widow at the town of Nain. It wasn't a small crowd that was watching that funeral procession as Jesus stopped the procession and reached over and touched the coffin and told that young man who was the only son of that widow, get up! And he came back to life. Who is this man. And yet as I take you back to the text that we'll look at briefly, that was our introduction. <laughs> In chapter 9, after Jesus had performed yet another miracle, probably one of the most astounding miracles, it was such a powerful miracle that it's recorded it's the only miracle that is recorded not only in all three synoptic Gospels, but it's recorded in the Gospel of John. It is such a powerful miracle that all four Gospels make sure that they record. When Jesus fed for, for a crowd that exceeded 15,000 people, folks, 
That's a lot of folks. I don't know how many people you've crowded into your house for dinner or lunch, but that's a big crowd of people, and he didn't have a catering service at his disposal. He had five loaves of bread and two measly fish. And he fed every person seated on the hillside that day. And not only did they eat till they were full, but the scripture says they had leftovers enough to fill 12 baskets. And on the hill of that amazing miracle, Jesus is praying, we're told, in chapter 9 of Luke. He's alone. As, as was the occasion for Jesus, it says in verse 18, and it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. You know, Jesus carved out time in his busy schedule, and even with the awareness that he was the second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus made sure he had time to commune with the Father. How can we think that we're more important? How can we somehow think that we're a little bit too busy in the midst of our daily schedules that we don't have time to get alone and talk to God. You see, Jesus understood the preeminence of knowing the will of God and He understood the absolute necessity of doing the will of God. You don't know the will of God and you can't do the will of God if you're not talking to God. And it was in this context that His disciples came to Him and Jesus seized upon that opportunity. It says that his disciples joined him and asked, and he asked them, saying, what do the crowds say, or who do the crowds say that I am? That's not the biggie. That's just setting the stage for the biggie. We've seen that earlier in chapter 9, in verse 7, when King Herod the Tetrarch, not King Herod the Great, but King Herod the Tetrarch, who was dealing with a guilty conscience because he had killed John the Baptist or had him beheaded. And all of a sudden, here's this man, Jesus, who is doing all that he's doing and drawing multitudes, and he's the talk of the town. And he's wondering, he's perplexed, and he says, who is this man? And he gets uh, people, he's got his scouts out there to poll the average people, stopping them, saying, who do you say he is? And, and these are the same answers that Jesus' disciples are giving him. When he asked his disciples, who do the crowds, the general public, say that I am? It would have been a great thing if they would have said, Master, without a single exception, everyone in the crowd says, you're the Son of God. You're the promised Messiah. You're the very one that the Scriptures have foretold. Now, as you look there, you can read for yourself in verse 19. So they answered and said, uh, it's John the Baptist. In other words, John the Baptist come back from the dead. But, but some say Elijah. And, and Elijah being the fiery prophet of God who didn't see death but was taken up by the chariots of fire as we saw in our lesson in Christian Growth Group last Sunday. And others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. And in one of the other uh, Gospels, it, it makes mention to Jeremiah. So the conclusion of the, of the crowd is, uh, we're not sure. We know he's not ordinary. Uh, 
but, but we're speculating that it's possible that he is John the Baptist come back from the dead. Or maybe God has sent by fiery char chariot Elijah back to us. Or maybe one of the other prophets. He's, he's got to be extraordinary. But you see, strike one. Strike two. Strike three. Oh, these are, these are notable explanations, mind you. They weren't saying that he was just an ordinary guy. But you see, they didn't know. They didn't know. But you see, I don't think that distressed Jesus. I don't think it surprised him. Because Jesus knows the heart of all the people. Jesus didn't come into this world to charm a multitude. He came to reach a few and to impress upon them the truth. Hence, the big question. And this leads to the disciples' declaration. Because in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, this is where he's going. This is where he's looking for. Verse 20. And I'm going to tell you something. Just as Jesus asked Peter and James and John and Andrew and the rest of the twelve, I guarantee you, He has asked you, or He will ask you, that same question. Okay? Irregardless of what the crowd says. You can ask people in the general public today, who is Jesus Christ? You'll get a wide variety of, of, of answers. You get people to say, well, he was just a heretic. Oh, he was a social reformer. He was a wonderful teacher. He was a good philosopher. He was a moral reformer. Oh, they'll give you all kinds of answers. But they missed the mark. Jesus asked his disciples, okay, forget what the crowd says. I'm paraphrasing. Who do you say? that I am. I shared with you last time I preached that at this point in Jesus' public ministry in Galilee, this is a watershed moment. Jesus is getting ready to leave Galilee and His attention is going to be on the city of Jerusalem. And more specifically, His focus is going to be on a Roman cross. That's what lies ahead for him for the next 18 months. He realizes his time is drawing nigh on this earth and he needs to make sure that the ones that he is going to entrust the coming church to, those who will be his ambassadors to a lost world, it doesn't matter what the crowd says. It matters what they say. It matters what they believe. And I'll tell you something, brothers and sisters, don't get so distracted by or discouraged by the attitudes of a lost and dying secular, materialistic, humanistic world. It really doesn't matter what they think about Jesus Christ. What matters is who is He to you? I like Matthew's more expanded version. Because in Luke's version there, and Luke is always thematic and to the point. And Luke's, Peter, speaking not just for himself, but as spokesman for the apostles, Peter in Luke's gospel says, the Christ of God. Well, it's true, but 
anymore. Matthew says, whoa, whoa, time out, time out, time out, Luke. He said more than that, okay? So in, in Matthew chapter 16, if you want to direct your attention there, or you can just listen. This is Peter's answer in chapter 16, verse 16 of Matthew's gospel. To the same question, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, listen, I like this. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Right on, Peter. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus goes on to affirm the answer that Peter gives on behalf of the other apostles. Because as we read further there, when Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus answered, listen carefully in verse 17 of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Do you understand what Jesus said there? That's why the multitude were guessing. Because God didn't reveal to them who Jesus was. Peter didn't come to that because he was intelligent, because he knew the Scriptures, because he was so anointed. Peter came to that conclusion because God opened his spiritual eyes to see who Jesus really was. My goodness, back on the boat in the lake when the storm was raging and Jesus calmed the sea at that point, they were still asking, who is this man? And God lifts the spiritual blinders off of the eyes of His disciples. God shines the light of divine illumination and revelation into the heart and the mind of Peter and James and John and that group. And resoundingly they said, we see it, we see it. He's not a prophet. He's not somebody come back from the dead. He is God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man receives not the things of the, of the Spirit of God, the foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Let me tell you something. The only reason for those of you who are true followers of Jesus Christ and you have answered this question with the same assurance and confidence that Peter did. Let me tell you something. Don't get too proud. Don't get too puffed up. Because it wasn't because of you. The only reason that you know that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, is because God has opened up your spiritual eyes to see it. If ever there was a time for the people of God to fall on our knees, when we consider the precious gift of salvation and the wonderful eternal relationship that is ours with Christ and the blessed hope that is ours that even when we die, we will be immediately transported into the presence of God and glorified where we'll live in His presence forever. The only reason we have that is because God has given it to us. And when, God, when Jesus was responding to Peter and the other disciples there, and he told Peter, Peter, you're blessed because Father, 
gave this to you from heaven. But listen to what Jesus said in verse 18. I'm looking at Matthew's Gospel, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, a little play on Peter's name that meant rock. And on this rock, not talking about Peter, this does not give any kind of biblical validation to the descendancy of the Pope. Jesus is not saying, Peter, you're the man. I'm going to build my church on you. No, no, Peter was just a man who had faith. He was no better than Andrew and, 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 and John and James and the rest of the apostles. He was just saying, oh, Peter, on this rock, what rock? The rock of the profession of faith that you just made. He had said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of God and whatever you bind on the earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on the earth will be loosed in heaven. So you see, with that powerful pronouncement of identification when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, yes indeed. God revealed that to you, and upon this foundation, I will build my church. And yes, He did. And so, here we are. And the church is still growing on that and being built on that same foundation. But isn't it interesting that just as the Lord's response here, Matthew chapter 16, it's, it's an unusual response that on one hand, it confirms to the disciples, you're right on. But then there's a confusing part of it, and I'll take you back over to Luke's Gospel in chapter 9. We're going to close. Verse 21. He strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one. Saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the, the elders and, and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Isn't that interesting? The greatest thing that they had ever discovered in their whole life. The greatest news they had to this date in their life. It's like having your first baby, Jacob and Brittany, and, and then being commanded, don't tell anybody. Shh. You've got to keep it a secret. <laughs> or you're getting a, a promotion on the job or something like that. I mean, you're busting to tell. And, and, and Jesus said, no, no, no. Keep it quiet. Keep it quiet. Don't tell anybody. There's a reason, <coughs> excuse me, in John's Gospel, in chapter 6, after the same miracle of the feeding 5,000, the multitude attempted to force Jesus at that point to be their earthly, political, social king. They were going to force him. They were trying to push him ahead of God's timetable. And Jesus immediately resisted that. Jesus knew that if his disciples went out there and started telling everybody right then what they knew, that Jesus indeed was the Christ, it could probably incite that kind of a reaction from the multitude. And Jesus knew there were a lot of things that needed to happen. A lot of things. Before he would be ascended to the throne as a king of kings. And Lord of Lords. <clears throat> we have a track that sits out there on the track rack. It's just a little pamphlet. It's put out by Dr. John MacArthur, wonderful Bible expositor. And it says, Stop. 
Who do you think I am? If God is prompting your heart to engage a friend, a family member, a co-worker, to just to attempt to share the gospel with them, at some point, you're going to have to bring them to this question. It doesn't matter all the scripture you quote. When it's all said and done, every person has to answer that question. And there's only one answer. Who do you think Jesus Christ is? How you celebrate Christmas is deeply impacted by how you have already answered that question or have not. Because, dear friend, if you don't know that you know that you know that that little baby born in that manger in Bethlehem was more than an anomaly, he was the incarnation of God. And he is the Christ and the Messiah and the only hope of lost sinful humanity. Let that question settle in. Let that be a question that God would put on your heart. If you love your family and love your friends and neighbors, let that question be a question that eventually God will lead you in a very tactful and loving way to pose to those you love. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus to you? Let's bow and close in prayer. As you just quietly with your heads bowed just for a moment reflect. I know I've covered a lot of Bible territory but the ending point is where I want us all to be at this point. And that is who is Jesus to you? Because, and I'll ask Amy, she would just to, just to play and, and just let, let the Spirit of God just ruminate this in our hearts and minds right now. The most important thing that I want you to settle right now is who is Jesus to you? Do you know without a shadow of doubt that in your heart by faith you have professed Him to be none other than the only begotten Son of God, second person of the Holy Trinity, Savior of the world, who shed blood on the cross, paid the price for the redemption of our sins, who was buried, and on the third day, arose, resurrected, bodily, in the power and the glory of God, and has ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on your behalf right now, who has sent His Holy Spirit to live in your heart and to live and, and to walk with you and to guide you and to convict you every day of your life. And because of that glorious knowledge, 
Should you die today? Tonight? Do you know without a doubt that you'll wake up in heaven in the presence of God? It all goes back to how you answer that question. <clears throat> Who do you know that you love and care about? That you have serious questions about how they would answer that question? Would you right now, in this private time of resolution with God, would you ask the Lord if it be His will? And only God chooses those that He draws to, to Jesus. You don't. But if it be His will, that you would have the opportunity to at least tell them who Jesus is to you. You don't have to preach to them. You don't have to beat them over the head of the Bible. But you would just at least want them to know who Jesus is to you. Now could I ask you as Amy continues to play, just to quietly stand, head still bowed, because the message that God has delivered through this humble servant through His Word to you today is not just so you can pat yourself on the back and feel good as you celebrate Christian and, uh, Christmas, though you should. This should enhance your celebration. But consider this to be a challenge of God saying, tell someone Someone who needs to know. And then leave the results to God. Only God can save. Only God can shine the light of illumination into their hearts. But be willing to do your part. Gracious Heavenly Father, I am so humbled to have had the opportunity to stand before this, this wonderful group to share this portion of your word in preparation for our celebration of Christmas. I pray... Lord, that you will encourage and revive and renew every Christian here today and excite us about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Lord, I pray for someone here today that, that has yet to truly settle this question. They may act like they have, they may talk like they have, but by faith they haven't settled there. I, I pray for them, Lord. If it's your will to save them, I pray you'll shine the light into their hearts even today. And I pray that you'll use us all as we go forth as your ambassadors, as your missionaries. And may you receive the glory. Oh, Lord, let the sweet occasion of salvation make our Christmas even greater. And we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, Amen. Go in peace. God bless you.